We please God when we lead a peaceful life, a private life, a productive life, and a generous life. Loving and pleasing God is the ultimate motivation for our lives. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. You'd open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me give you a little context. Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians from the city of Corinth, probably about AD 52, uh, about 20 years or thereabouts after Christ's resurrection. Paul and Silas and Timothy, remember, were a missionary team, and they had spent a few months in Thessalonica before they got ran out of town. And several months later, from Corinth, Paul's concerned about them. He's not sure how they're doing. Thessalonica was a very perverted city, shall we say the least, and they're a brand new church. They're pretty young. So he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, about 300 miles north of Corinth, to kind of check on him. How you doing? What's going on? And when Timothy comes back and says, this is a very young church, but they're standing firm in their faith. They're under persecution, but they still are following Christ, and they have warm regards to you. Paul wrote in this letter to commend them and also to give thanks to God for their faithfulness. That's where we've been. The first three chapters of this little book are really personal commendation and thanksgiving uh, and communication from Paul to them. He's kind of reminding them, remember when I was there? Here's what we talked about. When I was there with you, here's how we conducted ourselves, etc., etc. Now, we're going to make a major shift here in chapters 4 and 5. Paul's now going to move into some practical instruction about how to live in light of what they already know. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk, that means live, and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Here's our first principle. Loving and pleasing God is the ultimate motivation for our lives. Loving and pleasing God is the ultimate motivation for our lives. Paul uses some interesting words here. He uses the word exhort. To exhort means to urge strongly. It means to encourage into action based on fundamental truth. So it's a pretty strong word. And instruction is simply didactic teaching. In other words, it's how do you live in order to please God? What kind of life pleases God? Now, he uses this word walk. This is one of Paul's favorite words. Walk is a metaphor for your lifestyle. Walk is a metaphor for how you live. When you say, I'm, I'm walking with God, it means you're living with God. You're uh, going the same direction as God. You're moving at the same pace as God. So your walk is a metaphor for life. And he says, how your walk pleases God. The truth of it is, we all live to please somebody. We do. 
Sometimes a lot of people just live to please themselves, right? You know people like that. Some people live to please their spouse, their family, their friends, their boss, their peer group, whatever it happens to be. But we all, to some extent, live to please someone. Now, the ultimate goal for the Christian, of course, is to please God. And the ultimate pleasure God gets is very simple. It's when we place our faith in Christ Jesus as our Savior and Lord for the forgiveness of our sins, that brings the ultimate pleasure to God when he saves sinners and adopts a new son or daughter in his family. And Paul says, you're already doing that. You're doing fine, but he adds a little phrase, I want you to excel even more. In other words, there's no point at which you can say, I've gone as far in my walk with Jesus Christ as I can. I'm as spiritually mature as I can. I'm not interested in growing anymore. If you're breathing, you should be growing. Because if you're not growing, you're rotting. That's called decay, right? So either a plant grows or it begins to decay. The same thing as us. We need to continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you're doing a good job. I'm not unhappy, but I want to encourage you. I want to strongly urge you to continue to grow in your relationship with Christ. And he says, you know when we were with you what commandments we gave you. Paul is basically saying, look, I'm not going to tell you anything I haven't already told you. But I'm going to remind you of what I told you the first time I was there. The Thessalonians didn't need new truth. By the way, you and I don't need new truth either. I realize that much of the time, probably 80% of the time when you're in this class, I'm reminding you of what you already know. But we need to be reminded of what we already know. So we live according to what we already know. Because if we forget, the world goes 167 hours a week. You know, they're talking to us. The internet, the television, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got to figure out who's got me influenced. I need to be reminded of what the truth is. And that's what the Word of God does. Reminds us of who God is and who we are. And Paul says, when I gave you commandments the first time I was with you, I gave you them by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm telling you what God says. Lord, by the way, means master. It means owner. It means sovereign. So the Lord, when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we're saying Jesus Christ is master. Jesus Christ is owner. Jesus Christ is sovereign. He's king. And he's got every right to give us commands and for our obedience and our allegiance. Let me just make sure I'm talking to the right crowd. How many of you would say, I want to please God? I've got in the right place. God tells you how to do that. Hebrews 11:6 says what? And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God, she who comes to God must what? Believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. John 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples and to us, and he says, if you keep, that means obey, my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So pleasing God, number one, means, number one, you believe he exists. Number two, you seek him because you love him and you choose, you want to obey him. So the heart of pleasing God is a heart that loves God above all else. One of the more interesting um, descriptions of a person's life is in Acts 13.22, and this describes David. And this commentary says, God raised up David to be Israel's king, 
concerning whom also God testified and said, quote, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. You could put that on your gravestone, and that would be a really good epitaph if it was telling the truth, right? So David was described by God as a man after his own heart, which means he thought like God. He valued what God valued. He wanted what God wanted. He pursued what God pursued. He did what God wanted done. And the real core to David's life is that David valued God above everything else. Psalm 27, David is speaking and he says, When you, God, said, seek my face, my heart said what? Your face, O Lord, I will seek. Verse 4, he says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell on the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Now God says to the whole world, right? Whosoever will, what? Come. Come, right? Whosoever will, seek my face. See, God, David, not only heard God's invitation, he actually did something about it. Most people in the world, when the Lord says, seek my face, I want a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, my son, they go, eh, maybe later, right? We'll get around to it. I'll deal with you on my deathbed if you get one, right? David said, Lord, you said seek my face. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to be a God chaser. I'm going to go after you. I'm going to pursue you with a single-minded passion. You know, the hard truth is most people only want enough of God to get into heaven. And they don't want so much of God that it'll interfere with their plans here on earth. So God, I need, I need your fire insurance, but I don't want you meddling in my life down here. That's how many, many people view God. Someone once said, you have right now as much of a relationship with God as you choose to have. I think that's true. God wants a relationship with us far more than we want a relationship with him. He wants to deepen his relationship with us far more than we want a relationship with him. God, you know, God wasn't one of 15 things on David's list. Well, okay, I've got this list of, of priorities, and God, you're number 14 on the list of 15. David said, one thing, one thing, one thing I'm going to seek, I'm going to pursue. God was that one thing that David valued above all else. We have a song in our worship service. We sing what? Above all else, I adore your name. It's your person, your character. Above all else, tune my heart to sing your praise. Someone in the Old Testament who pleased God was Enoch. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For Enoch obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was what? Pleasing to God. And Genesis 5.24 describes his life. It says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now this description, walked with God, it means step by step. You ever walked with somebody in a destination? You're walking down the hall to get your coffee, and you're walking with somebody? Or you're walking the sidewalk to your car? 
you match them, right? Stride for stride. If you're walking with somebody, I know some of you have longer legs than others, right? So, you know, we have our grandson, and Papa's got to take really short steps because he's got really short legs. But I match his stride so we can walk together. That walking with God is that picture of you're going in the same direction as the Lord. You're taking the same steps as the Lord. He takes small steps for you because he loves you, right? It's almost like you're walking arm in arm and you're headed in the same direction. And Enoch fellowshiped with God, trusted God, obeyed God, was intimate with God, walked in the same direction with God. And you say, well, what motivated Enoch to walk with God and why would you put his name in the biblical record? Well, that's an interesting question. Genesis 5, 21 to 27 tells us he began to walk with God when he was 65 and hit Medicare age. <laughs> Something special about 65. At 65, his son was born. First son. And his name was Methuselah. You know Methuselah. He was the longest-lived human being, lived 969 years, the flood of Noah came the exact year Methuselah died. Some commentators believe that God revealed to Enoch that judgment was going to take place the year his son was going to die because Enoch named his son Methuselah. The name Methuselah means, quote, his death shall bring judgment which would be a very interesting thing to name your child. You would think you would need some biblical revelation before you were going to do that, right? Apparently, when God told Enoch about future judgment, at that point, Scripture says at 65 years old, at the birth of his son, he began to walk with God. Sometimes you wonder what it would take for people to finally say, Lord, I'm going your direction instead of my direction. Some people have very high pain tolerance before their hearing aid turns on. And they say, Lord, I'm now listening to your voice. Some of us have a lot of scar tissue. C'est moi, c'est moi. I'm talking to myself here, right? Before we begin to listen to what the Lord says. And it says that God was so delighted in his relationship with Enoch that 300 years later, Enoch was 365, God caught him up in heaven without dying. Now, this was the first rapture, right? Elijah was also raptured, caught up into heaven without dying. And the church that is on planet Earth, the body of Christ, when Christ returns, will be raptured in the future. Now, Enoch would have agreed with David. David said in Psalm 16:1, very interesting, he says, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's my question. Do you believe that? And if so, how would we know? Well, David would say, if you believe that in God's presence is fullness of joy, you would spend time in his presence. Yes? Because that's where there's joy. That's where there's pleasure. That's where there's um, uh, fulfillment. Now, if you want to be in God's presence, that requires purity. Verse 3, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, 
not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Here's the principle. We please God when we obey his command to live a life of sexual purity. We please God when we obey his command to live a life of sexual purity. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that our culture worships at the altar of sex. Any and all forms of sexual identity, sexual expression are not just tolerated in our culture. They're advertised, they're promoted, they're encouraged. History, humanity rather, has rejected God's design for sex. Contemporary culture believes a number of things that are absolutely not biblical. They believe that sex is simply a biological activity like eating or drinking. They believe that anybody who doesn't indulge your bodily desires, there's something wrong with you. If you discipline your bodily desires, that's a sign of mental impairment, according to our current culture. So sex anytime, anywhere, with anyone who consents is considered normal and desirable in our current culture. Now, it's interesting that Paul's day was no different from our day. In the first century Greco-Roman world, moral purity or chastity was virtually unknown. They lived in a very sexually promiscuous culture. As long as a man supported his family economically, there was absolutely no shame in extramarital relationships. As a matter of fact, in that culture, it was expected that you would have extramarital relationships. The Greek writer Demosthenes described the Greek culture as follows. This gives you an idea of how degraded they were. Quote, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body, and we keep wives for the beginning of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. That tells you how degraded the culture was. By the way, just to give you a little insight. The word prostitute means to take something that was designed for a legitimate purpose and misuse it for an illegitimate purpose. So God designed sex for holy purposes, including, by the way, holy pleasure. And human beings have prostituted or degraded and misused sex for selfish, sinful purposes. So anytime you prostitute something, anything, you're degrading its ability to fulfill the purpose for which God designed it. Now, the Greek culture in that era, for several hundred years, had legalized prostitution. Sexual favors were bought and sold on a one-time basis in the public square. They also had concubines, which were, quite frankly, women who were legally bought as sex slaves and kept for the sexual pleasure of their owners. They had mistresses, which were the original friends with benefits. They were conversational companions. They had occasional sexual partnerships as well. There was a great deal of adultery between married people in this culture. This Greek culture promoted homosexuality, man-boy love, the whole works. And then there was religious prostitution, or temple prostitution. In the city where the Thessalonians lived, Thessalonica, the goddess Aphrodite was a popular deity. And she was the goddess of sexuality and the patroness of prostitutes. So temples, where you worship the god, the goddess, the idol, were filled with cult prostitutes, both male and female, and worshipers could go and engage in sexual immorality as a way of making contact with the god or goddess who you were worshiping. The temple in Corinth had over 3,000 prostitutes. 
So that gives you some idea when Paul's writing to the Thessalonians about sexual purity, he's writing to them coming from a culture that's much like ours. So the gospel rescued them from the penalty of sin, but they still lived in the presence of sin. Would you say that's true of us as well? We're we're, we're safe from the penalty of sin, but we live in a sin-soaked culture. That's reality. Old habits die hard. Now, when Paul left Thessalonica, this church was only about four months old, maybe five months old. So you can understand why Paul was worried about them. They're brand new Christians. They live in this pagan culture, this culture like ours, and he's concerned about their spiritual well-being. So he's writing to them what God expects them how to live. And it's interesting question, what does God require of his people? Verse 3 says, this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I want you to know the will of God is not a mystery. God does not play hide-and-seek with his will. He's actually written it down. Many of you are reading it right now, right? It's on your phone or you have a hard copy of it at that point. God's will is that his people are sanctified. And sanctification in Greek is the word hagiosimos, which means to set apart. It means to separate. It means to have a barrier between you and something else. God saved us um, from sin, and he wants us to be set apart from sin. And he wants us to be set apart to God. That's what this word sanctification means. God saved us from sin in order that we would be holy, like God is, and pure like God is. Becoming more like Jesus is God's umbrella will for our life, but underneath that umbrella will, he says, look, Part of that becoming like Christ is I want you to be sexually pure. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. And that word means complete abstinence. Correct? Not messing around the edges. It means complete. Sexual immorality is any behavior that violates God's standard of moral purity. And this word immorality is the word porneia in Greek. And it's an umbrella term for any and all illicit sexual behavior. It could mean illicit sexual intercourse, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality. You can fill in the laundry list of sexual sins. Any sexual activity outside a monogamous relationship between husband and wife is sexual immorality. And God says, don't. See, God designed sex for multiple purposes. One of which, quite frankly, was human pleasure. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that God is the designer of sex, which he gave to us as a gift. And that's intensely pleasurable. But because sex is so precious and so powerful, he protected it with the firewall of marriage. I know many of you don't have a fireplace now, but back in the day, we actually burned wood in the fireplace. And fire can warm your house as long as the fire stays inside the fireplace, right? Now, marriage is the fireplace where God designed sex to be experienced and enjoyed. Inside the fireplace of marriage. If the fire gets outside the fireplace, what happens? It can burn your house down over your head with you and your family inside. Sex outside marriage, outside God's protected boundaries, is suicide. Spiritual suicide. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? 
Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? I mean, the obvious answer is, well, duh, no, right? Verse 29, so is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not be unpunished. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it, right? So it's important to understand that God's goal for our lives is not misery. God's goal for your life is joy. Satan will lie to you every time and say, God is not a good God. He does not want your pleasure. He does not want your joy. He's a killjoy. If you just indulge your bodily desires, you will experience pleasure and satisfaction, all these wonderful things, and there'll be no side consequences whatsoever. Now, that is a lie. God is a good God who gave us these gifts because he wants us to be joyful. He loves us enough because he's our heavenly father to what? Tell us what to do and what not to do in order to experience the joy of his company. So whether you're single or married, doesn't matter. When you do what God says to do, he blesses your life. When you reject what God says, you suffer. God commands, stay away from all sexual sins. Far, far away. And of course, how far should you stay? Well, Ephesians 5.3 says, do not let immorality, that's what he's talking about here, or any impurity even be named among you as is proper among saints. If you're asking how close can I get to sexual involvement without sinning, your motives are obvious, right? You're, you're trying to do that. Jesus said, if you look at someone else with lust, you have already committed adultery with them in your heart. See, the question is not how far I can go and avoid sin. The question is, how can I live a life that is separated from sin and holy to the Lord? So you say, okay, now I know what God's standard is. How do I obey God's command to abstain from sexual immorality? Verse 4 tells you how to do that. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Here's the principle. Your body is owned by God and loaned to you. So discipline your body for God's purposes, not Satan's plans. Your body is owned by God and loaned to you. So discipline your body for God's purposes, not Satan's plan. Now, Paul says, God says through Paul, I want you to possess your body. Possess means to master. Possess means to discipline. Possess means to control, right? It means you gain mastery over your own body. It's the opposite of being a slave to your body. In our culture, a good chunk of what's portrayed in Hollywood is slavery. Many, 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 much of what is portrayed in Hollywood is slavery to the flesh, right? It's portrayed as glamorous, but when you, when you look at what they're promoting, immorality, adultery, all this other stuff, it's being slave to the body. A classic example of someone who was a slave to his body was Jeffrey Epstein. That's called bondage. It's called slavery. And we have a culture that is in bondage to the body. God says, stop being in bondage to your flesh. Discipline your own body. Your body is the beachhead from which Satan tries to invade and conquer you. And of course, the solution to Satan's invasion is, first of all, surrender your body for God's use. So that it's not available for Satan. Romans 12.1 says what? 
I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, what? A living and holy sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I know this is not what our culture tells you, but you do not own your body. God owns your body. God owns your life. Where did you come from? He created you. He gave you life. You had nothing to say about when you were born, where you were born, who you were born to. That was divine choice. Now, your body is loaned to you. You're responsible to manage it, but you don't own it, which means you're not free to do whatever you want with it. Your body was made by God for his use, not human abuse. Worship is surrendering ourselves to God to use this as he chooses. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. The body is not for immorality, but the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. How did Paul treat his body? 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, I buffet. That's not buffet. That's buffet, right? Which means to discipline. He says, I discipline my body. Yeah, I know. Discipline it down at the buffet. Yes, right. And make it my slave. Make my body my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself should not be disqualified. He said, I want to make sure I'm living in accordance with what I'm preaching. So I discipline my life. I discipline my body to make sure that it's accountable. And it's God's instrument, not my instrument. So we're commanded not to be enslaved by our bodily passions. We're commanded to discipline our bodies in sanctification and honor, which means for God's purpose, for God's holiness. You know, you're supposed to honor. Honor means respect. Your body is holy because it belongs to God, and you honor God by using your body for his glory. It dishonors God when we use what belongs to him in sinful, selfish ways. You know why? Who lives inside you? The Holy Spirit lives inside you. Your body is God's temple. That's dwelling place. He lives in you. You're his house, right? And you're also his tool, his utensil, his implement. He works through you to accomplish his purposes. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 3.17, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. See, sexual immorality is a crime. Not only against God, it's a crime against yourself. Sexual immorality is like drinking water from a toilet that's been used. No one who respects their body drinks from a sewer, right? Watching pornography, which is ubiquitous today, it's, it'll come and find you, you don't have to go find it. Pornography is like filling your mind with sewage from a septic tank. See, I hear people say, well, that doesn't hurt anybody, it's a victimless crime. That's malarkey. Sexual immorality and pornography are not harmless. They rewire and install malware and viruses in your brain. They completely shape the way you view other people and the way you view yourself in opposition to how God sees you and how God wants you to see yourself. Ultimately, sexual sin destroys your ability to, destroy, to enjoy sex as God intended. And even worse, all sin, of course, creates distance between you and God. 
Here's a sobering thought. Whatever you do with your body, the Holy Spirit does with you. Because He lives in you. Whatever you watch on television or on the internet, He watches with you. Whenever you look at somebody and think a thought about them, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be sexual, whatever you think, He is conscious of what's running through your mind because He lives inside you. Now, if that doesn't sober you up, then you don't understand the nature of who you're dealing with. Almighty God watches us because He loves us like a father. People who know God should not be slaves to their bodies. They should discipline their thought life and discipline their bodies for the purposes of honoring Jesus Christ. He contrasts this in verse 5. He said, those of you who know God should not behave in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. By the way, lust is any desire that cannot be fulfilled inside the will of God. Lust is any desire that cannot be fulfilled inside the will of God. And when he uses the word lustful passion, he's talking about an almost uncontrollable desire or craving, almost like an addiction. In case you didn't know, lust is self-centered. That's not news to any of you, right? And it, 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 it seeks to manipulate others to please itself. Love, on the other hand, is selfless. Love serves others for their benefit. And Paul says, the unsaved people may know about God, but they don't have a personal relationship with God. This word know is the Hebrew word from yadha. It literally means an intimate relationship based on personal experience. It's not knowing about God from a book. It's having a personal relationship with God through personal experience. We use the term in the Old Testament that Adam and Eve knew each other, right? Now, that's not just sexual. That's also soulish. They knew each other. They knew each other spiritually. They knew each other emotionally. They knew each other intellectually. So they had a personal relationship with each other, and that's what we should have with God. Those of uh, the Gentiles, he's talking about those without God, who don't know God, they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You know what that means? They don't have the supernatural power necessary to break the power of sin in their life. Before Christ, everyone is a slave of sin. Everyone. You heard it this morning. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. People without Christ cannot please God because they cannot not sin. However, Paul says, you who know Christ, you who have the Holy Spirit in your life, you have the supernatural power to discipline your life, discipline your bodies, discipline your flesh, and honor God with them. He says in verse 6, And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of these things. Here's the principle. Sex outside of marriage is theft. And God will judge those who steal from him and his people. Sex outside marriage is theft. And God will judge those who steal from him and his people. Now, before we get into this judgment, I want you to take a look at God's both judgment and God's forgiveness. God judges unrepentant sinners. And he forgives every sinner who confesses and repents of their sins. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he gives them both judgment and mercy. And it applies to us in this room today. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you say, wow, pretty straight line, right? Demarcation. Verse 11 is hope. But such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. They're sobering verses because they talk about God's absolute judgment on sin. They're comforting verses because all of us are sinners, some of us in this arena, and the grace of Jesus Christ covers us from all sin, and the blood of Jesus Christ does in fact cleanse us from all sin. There is no sin that God cannot forgive, but you must repent and turn and confess and trust Christ to forgive your sins, correct? Say yes. Paul says, don't transgress in this matter of sexual immorality in your relationship with someone else. The word transgress means God has boundary conditions like a border, like a fence that says no trespassing, right? Sexual immorality is crossing God's no trespassing sign. You are now moving into territory that you are trespassing on and it's none of your business, right? Do not take, that's the word defraud, something that doesn't, belong to some, that doesn't belong to you. In other words, that's selfish. It's somebody else's expense that you're pleasing yourself. He's talking about sexual sin. So any sex outside marriage is theft. It's fraud. It's stealing what doesn't belong to you. Here's why. Your body belongs to Christ, number one. Here's another thing. If you're married, God gave your body to your spouse. You don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians 5. So first and foremost, your body belongs to Christ because he redeemed you. First of all, it belongs to God because he created you. And number two, number three, if you're married, your body's not yours anyway. It's, it's his or hers, whoever you're married to. So when you sexually sin, you're transgressing on God's sacred ground, and you're stealing what doesn't belong to you. Don't mess around with what belongs to God because the consequences of sexual sin are severe. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, the marriage bed is the fireplace. It's the only place God intended for sexual pleasure to be shared. And that place is to be honored and kept pure and, quite frankly, enjoyed. God gave us marital sex because he wants us to enjoy it within the protection of marriage. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And you say, well, how does God judge sexual immorality? Sometimes he just lets us experience the consequences of our decisions. It's called STDs, right? Lots of STDs in Kern County. Could be divorce. Could be spousal and child support. Could be attorney's fees. Could be a miserable marriage if you stay married. No trust. Could be a broken relationship with family and friends. Could be loneliness. Could be guilt. Could be death, right? See, all repented sin is forgiven. If you confess and repent, your sin is forgiven. Here's what's sobering. You still may have to live with the consequences, right? There are consequences. Verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. 
So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Here's the principle. As we submit to him, the Holy Spirit gives us supernatural power to overcome sexual immorality. As we submit to him, the Holy Spirit gives us supernatural power to overcome sexual immorality. Now, God is giving the commands, and of course, he is the author and designer of sex, so he has the right to make statements and make commands about how to govern that practice. And God says, clearly, you should practice sexual purity because I'm calling you to holiness and I judge sinfulness. And you have the ability to obey that command. See, our culture does not believe that. Our entire culture about contraceptives for grammar school children and sex education for K through 3 and abortion for 16 and 14 year olds without parental consent is presumed on one assumption. You can't control the flesh. You will give in to the flesh. That is what the natural man believes. Christians have supernatural power to resist that. You have the Holy Spirit. You cannot say, I don't have the power to be pure. You have the power to be pure. You have God himself living inside you. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the lusts of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is a fruit and outcome of the Spirit. Now, walking by the Spirit is like walking with God. It means you stay in step with the Holy Spirit. You're stepping where the Spirit goes. You're walking arm in arm, step in step, which means every morning you get up and say, Lord, what plans do you have for me today? How can I step with you today? How can I walk with you? How can I follow you? How can I do what you want me to do today? See, when you're walking with God, I promise you one thing. When you're walking with God, you're not sinning. A holy life glorifies God because it reveals his supernatural power in overcoming sin and reflects his character to the lost world. Here's a new statement for you. Purity is possible, even in a pagan culture. Because the Holy Spirit gives you self-control. If you want it. And if you're willing to exercise it. It really is submitting to the Lord every day and saying, Lord, I want to live a life that honors you. I want to live a life that pleases you. And I know that purity pleases you. Now, most of us in this room, knowing Christ, probably are not sexually sinning with our bodies. Probably not. But we sin with our minds pretty routinely. Most of us, it's thoughts, it's attitudes, far more important than it's behaviors. Because thoughts lead to behaviors. So the way you deal with this is you deal with it in the bud and submit to the Lord immediately when you start to think thoughts you hadn't ought to be thinking. That's how you deal with it. Verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be any need. Here's the principle. We please God when we lead a peaceful life, a private life, 
a productive life, and a generous life. We please God when we lead a peaceful life, a private life, a productive life, and a generous life. He says, look, Thessalonians, I want you to love the brethren. Now, there are a lot of different words for love in the New Testament. We've already talked a significant time about eros. Eros is Greek for physical love. We get the word erotic from that, erotic love. Eros is, should be celebrated in marital sex, but it's obviously censored outside of marriage. Storge is another kind of love. It's like family love, love of parents for children and aunts and uncles for nieces and nephews, etc. Philia is deep affection, as in friendships or even marriage. We have Philadelphia, which paradoxically means the city of brotherly love. And then the last one, agape. Agape is God's love that is expressed from God to us. It involves the will. Love is far more than emotion. Love is a decision. Love is a choice, a daily choice, to pursue the best interest of the loved one. And God teaches us to love each other with agape love, which is sacrificial love that's dedicated to the best interests of others. Now, some of the Thessalonians, just understand the context, they were into love in the brethren, but they thought that the Lord was going to come back immediately. And so they quit their jobs. And literally were being lazy. They were being slothful and they were freeloading on other Christians. And Paul writes them and rebukes them. And he says, I want you to lead a quiet life, which means peaceful. I want you to lead a tranquil life. I don't want you to, I don't want you to be a rabble-rouser. I don't want you to be a troublemaker. It means I want you to be content in your current circumstances, and I want you to be at peace in your current circumstances because you have the Lord in your life. Number two, I want you to attend your own business. That means respect other people's privacy. That means MYOB. You know what that means? Mind your own business. By the way, you have enough troubles of your own. You don't need to mess in somebody else's troubles, right? You got plenty of your own. Don't meddle. Don't gossip. Clean up your own backyard. Take the log out of your own eye before you start fiddling around with the, you know, the needle in somebody else's eye. Here's one for us as parents and grandparents. Don't give advice when it's not asked for. That is hard, especially when you look at the train and you say, bridge out, bridge out, bridge out. There's no track on that road, train wreck. Sometimes you got to watch it happen. And even then, they didn't necessarily ask you to pick up the pieces. Be careful, be careful, right? Number three, work with your own hands. Now, the Greeks hated manual labor. They thought it was beneath them. They were the big brain people, and they delegated all that to their slaves. Paul says, you Christians, be diligent. Work with your own hands. Do your own work. By the way, a good work ethic is a powerful witness about your Jesus. A hugely powerful witness. If you have a good work ethic, I believe Christians should be the most productive people in their workplace. You should be producing work in the workplace that your boss goes, wow. What makes you tick? How is it that you're able to produce that kind of workload? I may want to find out about your Jesus, right? And then lastly, he says, behave properly toward outsiders and not be any need. Don't be a burden. Don't be a barnacle. Don't be a leech. Don't be a parasite. Don't be a freeloader. Pay your own bills. What a concept. 
right? And by the way, also save enough to help others in need because other people sometimes become disabled and can't work, right? So the whole point of this whole lesson is pleasing God is the ultimate motivation for the Christian. How do we do that? Well, we do it by loving him and obeying his commands to live a morally pure life. It honors God. It also astonishes the world. It is huge testimony. A pure life, a life devoted to Jesus Christ, a life that is hardworking, diligent, honorable, and pure in God's sight, well, astonishes the world. They don't ever see that. So when you live that way, it is a huge testimony to the power of God and the power of your Jesus. Okay, let's review, and then Tom will come and lead us in prayer praise. Number one, loving and pleasing God is the ultimate motivation for our lives. Number two, we please God. How do we please God? We please Him when we obey His command to live a life of sexual purity. Number three, your body is owned by God. I know for many of you that's a new thing because our culture doesn't say that, but it's owned by God and loaned to you. So discipline your body for God's purposes and not Satan's plans. Number four, sex outside marriage is theft, and God will judge those who steal from him and his people. As we submit to him, number five, the Holy Spirit gives us supernatural power to overcome sexual immorality. And number six, we please God when we live a peaceful life, a private life, a productive life, and a generous life. Here's the reality. These commands run absolutely opposite what our culture says. And we are seeing the consequences of what happens in a culture when you're enslaved to your flesh as opposed to disciplining your flesh by the power of God. Amen? So the Lord wants to work through us to reach this culture, especially on Easter, celebrate his resurrection. You have resurrection power because you have God himself living within you. You have the ability to follow these and honor Jesus Christ by doing that. So now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.